This is Recorded Future, Inside Threat Intelligence for Cybersecurity. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Episode 84 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest today is Jason Kitchen. He's the Director of Cybersecurity Services at Versive, a cybersecurity company that delivers advanced threat detection and automation. Before joining Versive, Jason spent nearly 15 years in the U.S. intelligence community as an expert in technical and offensive cyber operations. He was responsible for the design and execution of advanced technical operations all over the world. He has two Director of National Intelligence Meritorious Unit Citations and a National Intelligence Professional Award from the National Counterproliferation Center. We'll learn about his experience in the intelligence community, how it differs from the private sector, and the challenges he faced transitioning between the two. We'll get his take on threat intelligence and how he thinks organizations can build effective security teams. Stay with us. Well, let's see, I was nine years old and I had this dream uh, that sounds ridiculous, but it's actually true. I, when I was nine years old, I decided I wanted to be an intelligence officer because I watched Hunt for Red October when I was sick uh, home from school for a week. And I watched that movie every day for a week and, and saw Alec Baldwin as Jack Ryan being an analyst getting helicoptered onto a submarine and thought, I want to be on a submarine, so I'm going to be an analyst and be an intelligence officer. So yeah, so decided back then. So sort of my my academic and uh, you know everything from nine years old till I got to college was sort of centered around this whatever I would want, have to do, want to do, or think would be the right thing to do um, to go into that sort of work, to go into the intelligence world. And when I got ready to go to college, left the Southwest deserts and moved out to the East Coast to be closer to the world where I thought intelligence was centered, which turned out to be right, but I didn't know left from right at that point, and started like many others do, which is, you know, trying to take the right classes in college, trying to get the right internships, trying to talk to the right people, make the right friends, get the right connections to start to just learn about the intelligence world. I mean, if you want to go into that world, it's not exactly an open door. I mean, you can look at the websites of various agencies and submit resumes and read job descriptions, but it's very much um, comes off as an exclusive club. It's not so much that once you get in, but it certainly seems that way from the outside. So, uh, did that for a while and uh, eventually found myself in the right position to get the right internships, which led to the right, you know, the series of internships while I was in college, which led to the right full-time position once I graduated and, and sort of put me in the world where I wanted to be. My career for the sort of 13 to 14 some odd years from then to now has been quite interesting. Um, I've sort of moved around between various disciplines in a couple of different agencies, but not many of them but always focused on a couple of key concepts. One was technical operations, which in later years became specifically cyber operations, um, and also focused on sort of programmatic building of capabilities such that um, you know, we want to achieve some particular sort of objective and we have a series of resources, people, technology, capabilities, money, et cetera. How do you put those things together into a coherent program to execute in a certain way that achieves a particular objective and generates a specific thing? And that that sort of process has been very constant throughout my career. And thus, as I progressed in my career and became more senior and had more responsibility and got to do more things in various parts of the organization with higher levels of visibility, you know, it was building sort of bigger and bigger things for bigger and bigger impact 
in front of a more senior and senior audience. Um, so that was all well and good right up until the spring of 20, let's see, it's 2018 now. So it'd be this, the spring of uh, 2017 where, um, you know, my wife and I decided for various reasons, uh, some obvious, some less so that it was time to leave uh, the federal government, time to leave that world entirely. And part of that was if I'm going to leave and do something else, I want to do it in a different part of the world. I, we had been on these coasts for a very long time because of my career and not being in the federal space, either as a, as a uh, staffer or contractor meant we could almost live and work anywhere. Um, and for a love of both the, the outdoors, rainy, cloudy days in the Pacific Northwest, um, we decided that, you know, we'd stay in the cybersecurity industry, which is what I of course still do now and settled out here in beautiful Seattle. Um, Versive, the company that I'm currently at, is solving a unique problem in the cybersecurity space, and that's what led me here. I mean, I think the reality for former federal people, employees or contractors of the federal government that are leaving that space is that you don't leave that space with a marketable skill set. Um, you may be very good at your job and have you know very good or unique skills, but the government doesn't really sign on to the idea of lots of certifications and formal training, at least in a large sense so that you could be a really good program manager, but you don't have a PMP. You could be fantastic at cybersecurity, but not have all the, all the certifications. So us leaving the federal space coming into, especially in cybersecurity, coming into the private sector, you know, the skill set's a little odd. The resume's extremely vague and lacking in detail. Mm -hmm. So the, it, it can be hard to figure out where do you land in the private sector? Where can you have an impact and continue to do good, important work? when you look certainly on paper and, and ultimately in person, very different from the traditional, you know, security leadership or expertise that lives in the private sector. So through all of those sorts of challenges, I found myself or specifically aimed for and landed here at uh, Aversive. Now, from your time in the intelligence community, what are some of the things that, uh, that you wish people had a better understanding of? Are there common misperceptions about the types of missions and the types of works that, that go on within the intelligence community? Oh, man. The, uh, the, mis the misconceptions and the, the problems with what people think actually goes on is a never-ending thing. And in fact, from the inside, it's always frustrating because you watch what's said on the news and shown in Hollywood and you, you sort of shake your fist at it and say, man, if people only knew what it was really like either for better or for worse. Now in the private sector, you look at it and say, you know, how do I get that message out, right? And podcasts like this and other mechanisms, how do I get that information out there so people understand what the reality is? I think the biggest one, in my opinion, would be the sort of the, this perception of illegality that intelligence agencies, whether it's CIA or NSA or even FBI, are sort of out there doing whatever they want, whenever they want to, with little to no oversight um, and sort of, you know, marauding around, collecting everyone's data and doing with it whatever they wish. When I do public speaking, when I speak at cybersecurity conferences, one of the things I harp on is the legal components to the intelligence world and how many lawyers exist in the intelligence world in an intelligence agency and how deep down they go. It's not as if they're sort of an office of general counsel at the very top. It's that that certainly does exist, but that office of general counsel has its lawyers deployed to the deepest levels of the organization to ensure that every operation we're running, offensive operations, defensive things, people out in the field, technical collection programs, cyber, human, SIGINT, all those sorts of things are going through armies of lawyers to ensure that the operations that we're executing are along lines with policy, with law, with the Constitution. Um, that's one of the misperceptions that I think the, the public writ large is, has 
very much based on the way the you know movies and media sort of portray it. The reality is it's a little bit more mundane. Yeah, it's interesting. In some of the conversations I've had with former intelligence community folks, they, they made the point that uh, if someone does make uh, you accidentally cross a line or even do something that may be, may be questionable, that it is a real hassle and pain to have to go through all of the steps and the paperwork and the dealing with lawyers just to, to document something like that. So it's not something people are out there doing willy-nilly. No, not, not even remotely so. In fact, uh, far more time is spent with various lawyers and policymakers ensuring that what we're doing not only meets the standards of the organization and not only meets the goals we want to achieve, but simply meets not only the legal, but the sort of who we are as Americans, right? And I know, you know, the intelligence world sort of has this aura of, you know, they do things in the dark that you don't really know that they would be doing and you wouldn't want to know that they're doing. But, you know, the the by far the majority of the work that goes on is right in line with what we, you know, believe and espouse to as as Americans and American citizens and, and what our ideology is in that regard. The screw ups, right, the things that people do wrong or get in trouble, right? It's the intelligence community and the agencies are staffed by human beings and those human beings will make mistakes. But given the stakes at play here, given the things that are going on and the implications of those things, when those mistakes happen, there is a lot of paperwork and a lot of lawyers and a lot of policy guidance and a lot of things you have to do. That's just the nature of any government, right? I think in the intelligence world, it's it's probably magnified because of the stakes of, of uh, or the implications of what they're doing. Yeah, it's really an interesting insight. Um, I want to touch on the, what the transition was like for you to go from the government side of things where, where you're doing offensive work into the private sector, where I, I suspect your work is much more defensive. That is exactly right. Uh, from 100% offense to uh, you know, 99 and three quarters percent defense. The transition was, you know, to be completely frank, it was hard. It's hard on many levels. Uh, and I think it's hard on levels you know, separate from cyber and offense and defense, just going from the federal government to the commercial space is, is challenging and is a challenge in and of itself. But specific to sort of the offense to the defense, when I left, one of the one of the reasons why I left and one of the sort of guiding lights for me coming out of the government and into the private sector was I had been as part of my offensive work, you know, I have insight and ability to see what other actors are doing to the United States, to companies in the United States, to government agencies in the United States. That was part and parcel of my work. So coming into the commercial sector was, you know, I've spent so many years on the offense. Now I want to lend the unique expertise that I've picked up in that regards now to the defensive side. And in the United States, at least because of the nature of our system here, the defensive posture is is almost entirely on the private sector's shoulders. The government, you know, bears not too much responsibility for the, the defensive side. So that transition, you know, at the sort of high level was not terribly hard. I think the bigger challenge is how do I take the information that I have and the knowledge that I have and get a, a private sector entity, company people, et cetera, to really understand that? Because it's hard, it's hard to translate, right? For basic things like terminology is weird and different and, and acronyms are weird and different, but at a higher level, the frame of thinking is is really different, right? My world was nation state APTs and existential threats to networks and, and you know large, big, impactful things. In the commercial world, it may be something as you know simplistic, quote unquote, as how do I keep all of this coin mining software or malware out of my network? That's a bit of a different problem. And how do you marry those two things together has been 
one of the more challenging transitions for me, sort of understanding that priority set and how do I translate between my background and my knowledge and what the commercial sector tends to care about the most. Now, did, did you experience any culture shock in terms of uh, what you had at your disposal, in terms of resources and uh, uh, analysts and uh, uh, you know expertise, things like that? Definitely culture shock. Not so much because of the resources, I would say. Um, the resources, the resource allocation, the resource picture is different, but not necessarily better or worse. I mean, you have the the basic stuff like if I need to hire somebody, I can hire someone in. I can get approval to hire someone and hire them in days. Uh, unlike the government where, right, I'm arguing for billets and budget and a very long, drawn-out process to bring people on board and things like security clearances, which take forever to get in place. Um, the private sector obviously doesn't suffer from those same sorts of things. So there's certainly, you know, there's certainly red tape and bureaucratic inertia, but nowhere near the level that the, the government tends to experience. I think the biggest difference is that I'm able to move a lot faster in the in the commercial world. There's less... There's less sort of stuff in the way, right? And I think to get back to your question about legal implications and lawyers, I don't have to take as much care on the legal side in the private sector as I had to do in, in, on the government side. That's not to say that we don't follow legal regulations, right, and have a general counsel. We certainly do. It's more that I don't have too many concerns right now that the, the activity that I'm engaged in may or may not violate the Fourth Amendment to the Constitution. Right. That's something in the government I had to worry about, and I had to work with my lawyer to understand how does the nature of this operation we're proposing potentially cause a Fourth Amendment violation versus the private sector where it's you know a much different corporate legal perspective. Now, what have you seen in terms of the evolution of the adversaries out there? What, what, um, what, what are you seeing from that point of view? I think perhaps the most fascinating is that there was a time before I was in the commercial sector, I mean, years ago, where... If you were to describe sort of cyber adversaries, you'd sort of have three main bullets. There'd be this sort of nation state actor at the top, right? And obviously that bullet gets stratified in and of itself and you have various levels of nation states. But nation states are sort of best of the best, cream of the crop, that sort of deal. Beneath that, you'd have organized criminal elements. And then the third bullet would be sort of hacktivist, you know, ideologically, ideologically driven actors, not for profit, not for intelligence collection, but just to make a political point. So those were the, the sort of like stratification. That, that was the hierarchy that we always dealt with. Now, those bullets are a little bit more blurry. Um, the reality, of course, is that each one of those bullets can act and look like any one of the other bullets. And it used to, that used to be more of a one-directional thing. A nation state could make themselves and their operations look like a criminal element or a hacktivist, right? It's good for if you want to drive misattribution or false flag or something like that. But now with, you know, the leak of tools and capabilities on the Internet, with the knowledge of how to execute sort of more sophisticated and fancier operations becoming more widely dispersed and available on the Internet, you have less sophisticated actors or previously less sophisticated who are now able to up level much faster and execute at a level of sophistication that is much higher than we would have expected. And that poses an interesting problem for enterprises, because for a time, from a defensive perspective, if you needed to secure yourself against nation state APTs, that was a particular brand of security that you needed and resource allocation that you needed for security. If you didn't, and you instead focused on sort of opportunistic cybercrime, then that was a different sort of security posture that you needed to have in place. Now, though, you have sort of opportunistic cybercrime that's executing with sophistication that's approaching or at the level of nation states. And that poses a real problem from like the chief information security officer level 
of how do I build a security paradigm in my enterprise network that can meet the level of threat that I face, not because I only face one threat or another, but because now the whole spectrum is a potential threat to me and I have to align myself against that. Um, so adversaries, you know, getting smarter, getting better, certainly. But I think the more important point is that across the spectrum, they're able to sort of up-level their capabilities with far more ease now than they were 10 years ago. Uh, let's talk about uh, threat intelligence. Uh, what is your take on it? What part do you think it plays in an organization's ability to protect themselves? So I'm a, I'm a big believer in threat intelligence. And of course, I say that because I say that from the from the aspect of the fact that my intelligence background, right, not sort of commercial threat intelligence as it is, but my intelligence background lends me to believe that understanding your adversary and who your adversary is and how they operate and what their objectives are allows you to inform better on your defensive posture and how you posture yourself, your network, your organization, and your people. I think the challenge that commercial entities have, though, is that you know threat intelligence is more than just a slide put up on a, a C-suite presentation once a month to say, you know, according to our intelligence feed, this is the threat that, you know, this is the latest APT coming after us, or this is what the organized criminal elements are doing from a tactic, tactics perspective, and thus how I must, you know, spend money or buy products or hire more people. Threat intelligence needs to be integrated better into a detection posture and a, and a mitigation and incident response posture inside of an organization. So from my perspective, I think threat intelligence sort of has two levels. There's a strategic who are the actors targeting us and what do we know about them and everything that we would need to know about them. And then the tactical, how do I take the data points related to those actors and integrate them into my detection and engineering frameworks so that that's great. My threat intelligence team knows that, you know, some APT or fuzzy snuggly duck is targeting me, but how do I take our knowledge of what fuzzy snuggly duck does and integrate something like those indicators into our, firewall configurations into our endpoint detection and response posture into our incident response framework. That's the real challenge that threat intelligence faces, basically, right, to break it down to the most basic level to, to show business relevance. Now, how do you dial that in? How, how do you dial in uh, the budgeting for that, uh, how to interact with uh, how much you do in-house, how much you contract out of house? Um, how do you turn those knobs? Yeah, that's a that's a hard problem. I think the answer to that question is more specific to the environment, right? Because it's possible that the the people making those decisions that you have to convince would won't be believers at all, and you're going to have to start from scratch to convince them why they should. And I think to do that well, you need people that not only understand what they're talking about, right? And former intelligence professionals out of you know the civilian or military side are good at that sort of thing, but more importantly, know how to communicate the information, and that's really. I think what the best answer to your question is, right? How do you know, how do you turn those knobs? How do you make those decisions? You need people that not only understand the discipline and the value of it and the business value, but can translate that into uh, CEO speak, right? Into words and pictures and sentences and bullet points that senior leadership, likely non-security related, understands to then get the budgets and resources that you need. You know, uh, outsourcing it versus sort of running it in-house, I think there's probably a mixed component there. And I think the answer to that gets back to the breakdown between strategic and tactical threat intelligence. I think there's things that you can do, for example, with, you know, IOC feeds coming out of some third-party provider, which is just list of IP addresses and domains and email addresses and, you know, file hashes, right? Just very, very tactical indicators. I think those sorts of things can probably be acted upon 
brought in-house and acted upon in-house relatively easily with the right personnel. The more strategic stuff is a little bit harder because it's one thing to have someone pull an IP address out of a file and put it into a configuration or to automate that process. But it's different for a person to be able to look at what a particular nation state actor is doing or what their objectives are and figure out how that meshes with what their organization does from a business perspective and how those two things come together and then what that threat picture looks like. That's the sort of thing where I think there's some amount of outsourcing that can be valuable, whether it's whether it's buying the feeds from the outside or having external entities help you define that picture. Because um, that skill set is a little bit more specific and nuanced and is, in my experience, a little bit rarer in the in the commercial world. Now, what are your recommendations uh, for folks who are trying to, to take this on, for folks who are trying to get started with threat intelligence? Any tips for them? I think the most important tip would be understand the business use case. From my background, I, of course, have a natural personal interest in what nation state actors are doing, because that's the world that I come from. I have an interest in what organized criminal elements are doing, because that's what my customers care about at the tactical level. But really, to build these programs and drive them to be successful in large commercial organizations, you need to be able to show the business justification for the work that you want to do, and then the money and the resourcing and the people and all the the facets that go along with it. So it's not good enough to talk about how interesting it is and how cool it is and how valuable it is in sort of a generalized way. What's critical is to say, if I know that particular actor sets are acting in a particular sort of way with particular tactics and tools and technologies, how do I take that information and make it business justifiable? How do I put it into the business case so that I can talk to the CEO and the CSO or the CISO and justify the program I want to build and the capabilities I want to bring on board. This is something the security world generally struggles with, not just threat intelligence, but the security world writ large, where we fail a lot of the time to talk to the business case for the work that we want to do. We tend to focus only on the security case. And that's because we're often spending time in the weeds and we're very excitable people and we really love what we do and we're very interested in it. But ultimately, the people making the decisions and, and providing your budgets and justifying your existence are not security people. They are very likely, you know, VP or C-suite level people who don't know anything about security and just know that they need to have it. But they're going to rely on you to explain to them why they do need it. That communication becomes extremely key. So for folks looking to get involved with threat intelligence or to build those programs or to make them larger, my recommendation first tip to start out is understand how it fits into the business case for your organization and then know how to talk about it uh, in that contextual framework. Our thanks to Jason Kitchen from Versive for joining us. If you enjoy this podcast, we hope you'll take the time to rate it and leave a review on iTunes. It really does help people find the show. Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Future Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast team includes coordinating producer Amanda McKeown, executive producer Greg Barrett, the show is produced by Pratt Street Media, with editor John Petrick, executive producer Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening.